Welcome to another episode of Karis on Crime. I'm your host, Beth Karras. Karis on Crime explores criminal justice issues and cases in the news. Send me your ideas and questions. My Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime. My Facebook page is my name, Beth Karras. Today, I'm doing the second interview in the case of Colleen McKernan. Colleen shot her husband, Rob, on New Year's Eve in 2014. She says in self-defense. Now, she killed him. She shot him several times. But the state of Ohio didn't believe it was in self-defense, and they charged her with murder. She went to trial twice, and both times, jurors deadlocked. They could not decide if it was murder or self-defense. So on the eve of her third trial, Colleen took a plea to manslaughter, and she received a seven-year sentence. So she's now in state prison. Now, she could be out in half that time. Laura Mills is today's guest. She was Colleen's attorney at the second trial and would have been her attorney at the third trial, but represented her during this plea. So I want to welcome you, Laura, and thank you for agreeing to share your thoughts and experiences representing Colleen McKernan. Absolutely. Thank you. So how did you get the case? You didn't represent her the first time. I didn't represent her the first time. Uh, Her father actually contacted me. I'm a local attorney here in Canton, Ohio. In fact, our office is right across the street from the courthouse um, where the first trial uh, was had. And so her father just was Googling attorneys, I think trying to find somebody local at that point in time. He noticed that I was a woman trial lawyer. I think he was um, somewhat interested in maybe finding a woman uh, for his daughter. And so what he did is once he talked to me, he said, obviously, this is Colleen's decision on who she's comfortable with. And so, you know, would you please sit down with her? And so myself and Max Hiltner of my office, we went to her house on a weekend, sat down at her kitchen table, uh, listened to her story, and just uh, absolutely believed everything she was telling us, um, instantly just wanted to dive in the case and help her. So um, it was just a perfect, it was a perfect fit for us. We really felt very strongly about the case. Well, that can't be the case with all of your clients, right? I mean, you were a criminal defense lawyer, so a lot of your clients probably did do the crimes they're charged with. Do you find yourself absolutely believing a lot of your clients? Um, Not all of my clients, obviously. And what was unique about Max and myself is that Max does criminal defense. And I did when I first started practicing law 20 three years ago, but I actually do a lot more um, medical malpractice. I do a lot of wrongful deaths. I'm much more of a civil lawyer. So for me to take this case was a little bit out of my wheelhouse, um, which, you know, shocked, I think, a lot of individuals that I would take this case, but I felt strongly about it. Like I said, believed her for me and um, the cases I have. Thankfully, I have the luxury that I don't need to just take every case. Um, if I'm, if I don't believe in the client or I don't believe I can make a difference. Okay. So she had already been tried once. Were you aware of the first trial? I was aware of the first trial. Um, not all the intricacies of it. I didn't watch it, even though it was right across the street. I was really busy when it was actually getting tried. And even though I know a lot of local lawyers went over there and watched it, I was not one of those lawyers. So what I did I obviously tried to read as much as I could about the first trial online, and then I met with Ian Friedman, who was Colleen's first lawyer, and he is a uh, true gentleman. He believed Colleen. He spent a lot of time with Max and I, shared all of uh, the contents of his file, his thoughts, his ideas. We brainstormed, 
I mean, he was absolutely phenomenal in kind of passing the torch for the second trial. So what were you looking for in a jury the second time around? And how did the jurors differ in both cases? The jurors, with the first trial, I was able to contact the foreman uh, and a few other jurors and speak to them from that first trial to get an idea of what the makeup was. So in the first jury, there were uh, 10 men and two women. And the two women were kind of on the fence. Um, They were wishy-washy in the sense that uh, either side could have probably convinced them if they worked hard enough. It's just that they knew that they were deadlocked. So what was valuable is to have that information. And then I did work with a local jury consultant, um, Amy Boron. She's fantastic. And we worked together to kind of look at, you know, does gender matter, socioeconomic issues, um, obviously, experience, education level, just about everything you can think of. Should we be looking at any of those items? Uh, my initial reaction is that women are very critical of women, and so I was not sure that I should put very many women on the jury, and especially because in the first trial the, they weren't strong. But I had a different opinion after I had worked with Amy for a while, and I had really Um, gotten into the case, and we decided that um, certainly the right uh, woman would be perfect. And in essence, we ended up having a number of women on our our jury the second time around. What was the uh, breakdown? Breakdown was, I think we had eight women and four men. I might be off by one, but I'm pretty sure we had the majority were women. As was the four person. As was the four-person, and one thing that was unique that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of is that we had a mother-daughter on the jury, and I have never had a mother-daughter on a jury, ever. I've and never seen that, not not, not knowingly, or a mother-son, or a father-daughter, father-son, nothing like that, a parent with a child. Mm-hmm. We decided to keep them on, and what is interesting is that they split, so they did not agree. Whoa! Interesting. Which one was which? Which one went which way? Uh, daughter was not guilty. Mom was guilty. Oh, interesting. And the daughter was mm-hmm. closer to Colleen's age. Colleen was in her late twenties at the time, correct? Exactly, closer to Colleen's age. And what you know, we really felt that we needed strong women. So you know, and strong men for that matter. I mean, the the goal obviously when you're trying a case of that magnitude is you want those jurors to, you know, really listen, pay attention, and then hold on to their convictions. You don't want them to be easily swayed. So we felt that both mom and daughter really, you know, met that criteria. They seemed attentive, and they were, and they were strong women. How did the strategy change in the second trial? Did you, did you learn from the first trial? Did uh, Ian suggest you make changes? We learned from um, the first trial, and, and I think with Ian right out of the gate, you know, we've had kind of had two issues with this case that some of the jurors had a problem getting their hands around, which is, number one, she shot him ten times, right? So Colleen has ten shots, and two, she can't account for all of those shots. So we needed to be able to explain that. And when you're in such a state of trauma, 
to remember each and every shot, it's very likely that you will not. But we had to scientifically explain that for a jury. So the first time around, they did not have an expert that could speak to that, what we call a dissociated state. The second trial we did, we brought in Dr. Lubit. I think he did a very nice job. Uh, he's a likable uh, individual. He speaks well and in kind of layman's terms. So he was able to explain that, you know, when you're fearing for your life and you're just in that state of complete trauma, um, that it was very possible, and he believed that Colleen, she can recall, obviously, having to fire the gun because Rob was so close to her, but she could not recite each and every shot or where the shot would have gone um, during all the 10 shots. And I think that was helpful for the jury to hear. Let me ask you about what the jury didn't hear. Now, Rob McKernan had been through the justice system before. He had had some domestic violence allegations against him in the past with other women. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The judge kept that out, right? Yes. What the judge permitted was Colleen was aware of Rob's past. He had had past domestic violence. Uh, charges, which had then been reduced down to, I believe, disorderly conduct. And so he had told Colleen about these domestic violence charges, but he had minimized them, obviously, um, very much. And so she did not, although she, she raised a red flag to her, it certainly um, did not make a difference in her choosing to marry him. So she overlooked it. And we were able to elicit from Colleen that she knew about these prior charges. But what we couldn't do is talk about the actual charges or get into any of the details of what had occurred in order to get him charged um, and in the system. So we were prevented from that. It was a ruling, obviously, we accepted from the judge. Um, But it's a lot of information that I know Colleen's family was very upset, could not be told. What are the details of that? Can you share? I really can't share all of the details um, because a lot of that information uh, was deemed attorney's eyes only um, as we received that information, so I wouldn't be fair in sharing that. I do believe, personally believe, that that information um, would have been extremely helpful for the jurors, especially since I know some of them really wanted to understand what had taken place and wanted to get um, a better understanding of the abuse. Now, did Colleen testify at both trials? She testified at both trials. Um, first trial, she did um, kind of a reenactment. The direct examination was good, obviously, but she reenacted kind of what had happened um, that night. I think she got down from the stand and tried to do that. As I was able to watch that on video, I think it's so impossible to kind of reenact um, exactly, you know, what was happening that night as Rob was, you know, pulling her out of the car and dragging her, and it just kind of looks unnatural. What we did is we did not do that reenactment. We changed kind of um, how she testified and broke down her relationship with Rob, and then ultimately we brought in an individual who had put together an animation, like a demonstrative evidence um, animation, so that the jurors could watch a video of at least what had happened in the hallway to get a sense of that, um, as opposed to calling doing any kind of reenactment of that. And then the third trial, we were completely 
prepared for her to testify again. And um, we were going to do it a little bit differently. I, I don't think I don't think there were any of the jurors that didn't believe her. Uh, she comes off very honest. She comes uh, off, um, you know, very um, understandable. And her story's always been consistent. But learning from the jurors, I think what we're going to do is concentrate a little bit more on the abuse that she had suffered under Rob so that they could understand and maybe spend a little more time on that. So can you go through the, um, I'm actually, I should have asked you this earlier, but can you go through um, the incident that evening? Because they had both been out at a bar or a party and they were drinking, right? So they were both drunk. Well, yes, they had been drinking. It was New Year's Eve. So, you know, they're in their 20s um, and they're out on New Year's Eve. And there had been, there had been issues before when Rob drank, certainly when he, that, that Colleen has alleged that when he drank, you know, alcohol in the sense of liquor, whiskey, your harder alcohol, that he would become very mean or abusive. And so she and Rob had made an agreement on New Year's Eve that, yes, they were going to go out. They were going to, they'd had a rough couple of months. Yes, they were going to enjoy themselves, but that Rob would stick to beer. You know, maybe that they had a few warm apple pies, some lighter shots, but not, you know, not whiskey, not any of your harder liquors so that they could have a nice time. They even set an amount of money they were going to spend so they wouldn't spend a crazy amount on alcohol. Um, I do not believe, based on what Colleen drank, that I understand that she was drunk at the time that she shot Rob at all. Um, she certainly, you know, there had been a span of time she'd been eating. It's not as if they were pounding alcohol the entire time. They'd played pool, gone to a friend's house, walked to a bar and back. Um, you know, there'd been an entire evening. But in any event, to kind of conclude the story, they went out, um, met friends, went to a friend's house. Actually, at that friend's house, she had walked to the back patio and she believed that Rob was about to do drugs. He was leaning over what looked like a white powder and a straw. She kind of freaked out. She'd obviously never seen her husband do drugs. And she got very upset. And that is when they left the party, which was a little before 11 p.m. And she was going to walk to a friend's house, which is very close. And he's yelling at her and telling her just to get in the car. And she thinks maybe she should just get in the car, go back to where they live, she had friends that lived across the street. She was going to go over there. She knew they were home. She had planned on seeing them. And then once they got home, Rob came around the car, got a hold of her, put his hand over her mouth so she couldn't yell, couldn't breathe, dragged her into the house, um, shook her, screamed at her, told her he was going to give uh, her a reason to call the cops, and um, just kind of turned into just a yelling um, maniac and scared her. And so she did that night, grabbed the gun that was in the house to try to get out. He was in the kitchen, and she was in the bedroom. So in order to get out of the house, the exit is right by the kitchen. So she grabbed the gun so she could get down the hallway. Tell, she was telling him to back up, get out of the way so she could get down the stairs, and he wouldn't back up. Instead, he was coming towards her. And so when he got within about 18 inches, 15 to 18 inches, we believe, is when she shot him. Now, of the 10 shots, six are in the front, two in the mouth, right? And then four more in the front and then four in the back. Two, yeah, the two were in the face. 
and then you have um, four in the front, one that kind of goes through the arm and comes out the other side, and then the, the remainder in the back. But what's interesting is the very first shot that she shot in the mouth actually would have gone to the back. It didn't get into the brain stem, but what it did is it affected, um, it went into a pocket and it affected his spinal column, which would have caused the left side of his body to just become involuntary. He wouldn't have been able to control um, his movement, and he started to shift a little bit. The next shot to his face went through his tongue and, you know, through some teeth, and so did not actually hit the brain stem. Um, and the remainder of the shots are what we call bleed-out shots, which he would have still had voluntary movement with those particular shots um, for quite some time. But our coroner believes the very first shot killed him. And uh, does your coroner think one of the first shots was in the mouth? Yes, the very first shot that actually would have affected his spinal column, which is not directly through the brainstem, but in the back pocket, would have killed him. Now not she, immediately, but within a few moments. Well, she called 911 right away, right? She called 911 immediately. Um, and one of the reasons we know that is we can hear on the 911 call that she thinks that she feels a pulse. And we know from our coroner that it would have been, um, you know, minutes that he would have lived after that shot. So she immediately called 911. She was doing CPR. She was doing everything she possibly could do. So let's let's listen to that 911 call. And when we come out of it, I will ask you a couple of questions about it. Okay. Nine one one. Any police, fire, medical. Listen to me. I'm really drunk, and I fucking my husband put his hands on me again. Where are you? I I was I fucking killed. Oh my god. Where are you? Where are you, ma'am? Seventeen fifty three Oakdale Street. Okay. Seventeen one seven. Okay. Stand the line. Ma'am, let me get you mouth and police. Hold on one second. I'm doing, I'm doing fucking CPR, please. Let me get you mouth on. Hold on one second. Ma'am? Yeah? Ma'am, is he breathing? He's not. I tried doing CPR, but he's dead. Okay, where is the gun, ma'am? I don't know. What do you mean? I'm, you not gonna, I'm not going to hurt anybody when they call me here. He's not. I don't even know where it is. He fucking. He's where did this happen at? Where you're at? In the room that you're at? Or in another room? He's in the house. Okay. I tried, I tried doing CBR. And this fucking boy coming out of his mouth. It's over. He's fucking dead. All right. What is his name, ma'am? I can't. I can't understand you, hon. Can you try that one more time? What is his name? Robert <laughs> McKernan. What is your name? Colleen McKernan. Colleen, can you tell me where you set the gun down at? Yes. 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 I. I can't. I'm 
I'm looking at it right now. It's just by the TV. I'm not going to touch it. I'm not going to touch it. by the TV. If I could put his hands on me for the last time. And I'm drunk. And I didn't mean to You've You've been drinking? I, I've called before. I've called before and they did never came. When did you call? Did you call 911 and hang up, ma'am? No. All right. Oh what, what room in the house are you at? I'm in I'm in the living room by the by the TV with the dining room. Okay, are you near the front door? Yes, I can come outside wherever the police want. Whatever okay. they want, I'll do. All right, when you do go outside, I'm going to have you go outside when they get there. When you do go outside, make sure they can see your hands, okay? Okay, I'll put it below this slide. Do not pick up that Should weapon. Should I continue? Should I continue doing CPR? You, you can. Oh, it. Go ahead and put the phone down and continue to do CPR if you would like. <laughs> One, two, APR at all? Is he breathing? I'm not. I'm sorry. I broke one of his ribs. You broke one of his ribs? 
sometimes that happens, okay? at the door yet? The officers are time for a break. You're listening to Karis on Crime. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Welcome back to Karis on Crime. I'm speaking to Laura Mills, attorney for Colleen McKernan. We've just listened to the 911 call that Colleen placed shortly after shooting her husband, Rob, 10 times during an argument on New Year's Eve 2014. Okay, so she certainly sounds distraught, maybe even a little drunk. You think she wasn't, though? Um, I think that she certainly was distraught. I think in that kind of a situation, um, you know, a lot of times they refer to it as kind of a fight-or-flight situation. If you're in that fight situation, your entire physical body experiences things differently. So all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're... Blood is, pressure is rushing. You're um, starting to just get an adrenaline, and you're you're panting usually, and you're just you're sweating. You're receiving all of these kind of physical conditions relative to that. Oh my God, I've, uh, I'm in a survival mode. So I think she had been drinking clearly. So I think at some point in the night she was tipsy. Yes. Do I think how she sounds on that 911 call means that she was drunk? No. I think a lot of it was because she was 
you know, kind of outside of her mind at that moment that her husband's on the ground and she's in the situation she's in. I assume the law of self-defense is similar in Ohio to other states. So when can you use deadly force to defend yourself or a third person? Well, self-defense in Ohio is a, is a little unique. Um, as far as using deadly force, you can use deadly force against another person if you have a reasonable belief, even if that reasonable belief is mistaken, that the person poses an imminent danger of death or great bodily harm. So that's kind of our, our standard. With self-defense, we actually have a burden in Ohio on the defendant, and that burden is that the defendant must prove beyond a preponderance, so more likely than not, that the individual was defending themselves. So in Ohio, it makes it, it makes it complicated for a jury, and it makes it very hard on the defendant. In one um, instance, they're obviously trying to, to defend themselves against the charges from the state, which they have a burden of beyond a reasonable doubt, but they're also trying to... Um, they're trying to prove their own burden, which is this preponderance of the evidence. So I think sometimes for jurors, it makes it very hard to understand and can be confusing in the jury instructions. So how do you make the argument, and how did you make the argument for Colleen that she was justified when Rob didn't have a weapon? Well, Rob didn't have a weapon, but if, um, you know, certainly the jurors had heard that Rob was familiar with guns. He had been in the military as well. We had certainly had Colleen on the stand. We went through, and I did the closing, we went through that moment in time. It was just a few seconds that both Colleen and Rob are in this hallway. She's, she has the gun pointed at him. She's telling him to back up. Um, he's been yelling. He's already hurt her. And as she's telling him to back up, he's moving forward. So what comes into play in, in that short sequence of time that the jurors have to consider is, number one, she, Colleen has no duty to retreat. Here in Ohio, you have no duty to retreat your home. So she was fine to stand her ground. But number two, she cannot be the initial aggressor. So what further complicates jury instructions and further complicates things for the jurors is that now they have to determine who was the initial aggressor and at what point. And I know in speaking with the jurors from the first trial, they really struggled with that. And I know that the jurors from the second trial really needed to talk about that. Um, you know, who was the initial aggressor? Did it change? Um, did, did Rob withdraw at any point in time? Did Colleen? So, again, the, the law here in Ohio, it's, it's unique and it's a little confusing um, sometimes when obviously you have to try to explain it to a jury. So... Just for listeners who may not understand some of these terms, well, initial aggressor speaks for itself, but I mean, Rob initially was the aggressor in, in grabbing her and forcing her into the house and up the stairs, but then he leaves her, right? And that's where things change. That's where things change. And I know even from speaking to some of the jurors from the first trial, there's a point in time where they're at the party before... Um, they leave the party, Colleen catches Rob um, getting ready to lean over to do drugs, and she talks about that. And she obviously she was upset, and she was yelling, and she, you know, I think one of the witnesses said she slammed the door when she left um, the porch area. So, you know, there were some jurors in the first trial that struggled with, well, was she an aggressor at that point in time? 
um, by those actions, which, you know, was so far removed from then those few seconds in the hallway. So it, it was certainly uh, an issue for both juries uh, that they had to come to grasp with in order to make a decision. Why was there a gun in the house? Colleen had been in the military. In fact, she was military police um, when she was in active duty. And upon serving her four years, she had actually re-enlisted. And when she was in, I believe it was South Carolina, she purchased just a personal safety, it was a Glock 26, personal safety gun um, that she could carry, and I think it was back in 2010. Um, what's interesting is this gun was in the house, obviously, for the same reasons. Rob worked a lot, um, was gone at night sometimes, so they had the gun in the house. He clearly wanted her to have something to protect herself. And she had not actually shot that gun at all during the time that they had been dating or married. So it was not as if she was somebody that, you know, is going to the range, is shooting all the time, is active in accumulating guns or, you know, has that as a hobby. It was clearly just there in case somebody broke in the house and she could protect herself. Was Rob able to be licensed to carry a gun? I don't know the answer to that. Um, You know, clearly I think he would have been on probation due to some of his history in the legal system. And I do know that he had, uh, according to Colleen, repeatedly asked her to buy a a gun and put it in her name. So obviously that leads me to think suspiciously there must have been some kind of problem. Now back to the 911 call. This wasn't the first time she called 911 on him. No, there had been an incident um, back in November, a very scary incident. They had been out, and Rob was driving crazy like he did on New Year's Eve and scaring her. He was hitting her in the car, and she was actually trying to get the 911 call to go through while she was in the car, and it kept hanging up on the dispatcher. So she waited until she got back to the house and then went to a neighbor's, much like she was hoping she could do on New Year's Eve. And she called 911 once she got to the neighbor's house, and she wanted them to come out and prevent him from actually coming home. So she just wanted Rob to just not come back to the house that night. She knew he'd been drinking. And they said they really couldn't do that. Uh, They were married. They couldn't prevent him from coming back. If she wanted to file a report, she could file a report, and she could go down that path, and that that would be different. But just to intervene to stop him from coming home, that they would not do that. And so she did not want to file a report. Rob had a son. He was having some custody issues. She knew he had priors. She was still in kind of a protective mode and didn't want to completely hurt him. She just didn't want him to come home and hurt her. Now, did the, um, did the jury hear anything about that, second, that earlier 911 call? The jury heard from Colleen that she had made the call, and the jury heard from the neighbor that she was in her house when she made the call, but we were not permitted, based on the evidentiary um, ruling, to actually play the 911 call for the jury. Was that earlier 911 call the only record of any sort of you know, allegations of abuse by by Rob against Colleen. Had she ever, she didn't file a report in that case. Had she ever 
filed a report before? Did he ever hit her? Were, were there any photos or medical records? There were no medical records. She had never filed a previous report. She did um, actually uh, go to his mother uh, and, and speak to Rob's mom about the abuse, hoping that she could somehow help her. Um, you know, Colleen was kind of in a new marriage. They hadn't been married but eight, nine months. And she was, I think, still trying to kind of figure out, how do I manage this? Um, how do I make it work? And what do I do? So she had, she really kept it to herself, other than Rob's mother. Um, obviously talked to the neighbor, and we have one 911 call. Um, and she had talked to family members about counseling, but not anything relative to the physical abuse. Now, there was an insurance policy, a life insurance policy. She was made the beneficiary, but it wasn't effective yet, right, when he died? Correct. So what had happened is through his work, he had a policy. And while they were engaged, he had listed Colleen, I believe he had listed Colleen to receive half and his son to receive the other half. And then it was time to fill out the form for the for the new year, which would have been 2015, and Rob's, um, the mother of Rob's child had taken him back through for some child support, and he was paying child support, so he I apparently was not very happy with that amount at the time, and so what he did is he told Colleen, I'm going to just put you on this policy, and you make sure my son gets his portion as opposed to it going to um, his mother, and so he had switched it so that Colleen would be on there just 100%, but that did not become effective until January 1. And, and, and he was killed at about 11.10 p.m. on December 31st, 2014. Yes, exactly. So it clearly was, you know, the day before. Almost an hour before the life insurance policy went into effect. But didn't the state try to use that as a motive at one point? But you know what? It was odd. Um, they did in the first trial. They they apparently made somewhat of a big deal about it, which I never understood why they would, because I think it sounds absurd. In the second trial, there was a I think a small reference to it, but they they didn't make anywhere near um, as as big a point or try to make a big point about it because it just didn't add up. I mean, they're trying to. It's almost sounded, I think, in the first trials that they were trying to prove kind of a premeditation, although obviously the timing doesn't work out for that. So it, it just sounded silly. Now, did Rob have some psychological issues? Didn't he attempt suicide just before he met her? He did. And um, unfortunately, for he had some psychological issues that Colleen knew very little about. So again, she was... Um, not really permitted to speak to them because she didn't understand them completely. She knew that when she was dating Rob that he didn't drink very much at all. And he had made some reference to or something about he was on medication or couldn't drink or I forget the exact words. And so it was a much different Rob um, than actually until they were married. The first time she ever saw Rob drink significantly was the night before their wedding, he got so drunk, fell down, had a big kind of goose egg on his head, and it's the first time she saw him behave that way. So during the entire dating phase and engagement phase, um, Rob was not drinking. 
which was pretty short. They met in the fall of 2013 and married in April of 2014, right? Yes. Yeah, it was a very short time frame. And and they were apart some of that time because she was at, like, I don't know, training or reserve, reserve. She was a reservist. She was, and so she had to do certain time. And, and it's one of the things that Colleen was going to speak to in the third trial is that there were some red flags. You know, she overlooked them. She was in a point in her life where she had served her country. She had gone to school. She had her bachelor's degree. She was working on her master's. She had a job. She had enough money to buy a house. She felt it was time to get married. Um, and so she overlooked these things with Rob, which in hindsight, um, obviously was not a good decision. And so this time in the third trial, she was going to kind of, you know, own up to that a little bit and explain to the jurors that you're right. If you're sitting there thinking, why did I marry this guy in six months? You're right. I mean, it was a mistake. Um, but at the time I didn't see it that way. I was in a mode of, I'm ready to settle down. Back to that night. I read in some report, I'm not sure which one, that Colleen had asked the, the police to take her blood alcohol content, to take get, give her a test to determine if she had alcohol in her system, and they never did. Is that true? And that's, that is true. She asked, if you listen to the booking video, um, she asked a number of times. And I think, you know, one of the things that I've learned about Colleen, because I've spent a whole lot of time with her, um, this getting ready even for the for the second trial we didn't have as much time but the third trial we had a lot of time and we spent a lot of time together and she's very kind of rule oriented and i think it comes from the discipline of being in the military and then certainly from being military police so she would have been trained okay this is what you do if you suspect someone's been drinking you take their blood alcohol and i think part of that is not so much hey i want to prove i'm not drunk or whatever it is, this is what you do, and you're in this, she's in this traumatic moment, and she's just reverting to what she knows. I honestly think that's why she just keeps saying it. If it had been taken, and if it had shown she had alcohol in her system enough to perhaps uh, impair her judgment a bit, that could have worked in your favor. Yes and no. Um, you know, juries, I don't think, like that. So they, they for a murder charge potentially, uh, relative to the intentional aspect of it. But with manslaughter, which was certainly going to be on the table for the third trial, we were surprised the prosecutor didn't put it on uh, the table. They could have late in the game, put it on for an instruction, and and let the jury feel like they were splitting the baby. Um, I don't think ultimately they would have done that, since I've now talked to the juries, uh, the juror members. But for the third trial, they told us that they would do that. So manslaughter would have been on. And I think, you know, under the manslaughter instruction that that I'm not sure that alcohol would have helped either one of us. You know, it just depends on some, how someone processes that. When she was first arrested, pretty low bail was set. Yes. And she had been out, right, the whole time? She was out. Um, I, you know, I wouldn't call it out in the, in the respect that she had a bracelet on. So that means that she can really only stay within a residence. Um, she was staying with a family member, and she was allowed to come in, you know, every two weeks period of time and then every week into my office, and she was certainly allowed to see a counselor and uh, a doctor's appointment, but that's it. 
I mean, she was not allowed to be sitting out on the porch. She wasn't getting any outside fresh air. Um, she was literally contained. But she wasn't in a jail. Correct. She was not in a jail. So that low bail certainly uh, seems to uh, indicate the judge thought she could have a good defense here, or she's she's not really a danger. Well, exactly. Um, she could have a good defense, number one. Two, here's somebody who served her country. She's never been in trouble before. Family is fantastic. They were there. They were, you know, going to post the bail. They were going to take care of her. She had some place to stay. Um, they were all kind, you know, the, all of the management aspects um, of having somebody out on bail like that were taken care of. So let me ask you just a couple more questions as we wrap this up. So you're on the eve of the third trial, and what happened? The state came to you with an offer? What happened? Yes, yes. So the state came to us with an offer. Um, During the first trial, there had never been an offer. During the second trial, there had been some discussion, um, actually while the jury was out, I believe, about maybe 10 years. And Colleen wasn't interested in anything like that. So with the third trial, maybe about two weeks before we were set to go forward, uh, maybe a little more, um, we, we did have, you know, certainly an offer and something to talk about with Colleen. And she has been a fighter the whole way through, C- complete trooper, very strong, um, has indicated she would not take a plea. So with the plea arrangement that she has, it is, um, obviously, it's seven years. She has a gun spec, so she has to do the three, mandatory. But then with the remaining four, she's eligible in six months. So she really should get out in three and a half years. And in three and a half years, she's 32 years old. So one of the things that we discussed is it's terribly unfair, the circumstances that she's been dealt, obviously, because we believe her. But knowing that she gets out at 32 and she can still have a family and, you know, children and a life, um, versus going through another trial and maybe she gets a hung, they can try her again. They can try her as many times as they want. She can or sit who, and be stuck in the house. Who knows? Maybe the third jury would have uh, ultimately convicted her of murder. Right. And if they do, that's life. So she really thought, I mean, it was a decision, obviously, that she did not make easily. Her first reaction was no. And then it was, let's, you know, we asked her to just sleep on it, not in not enticing her to take it by any stretch, but, you know, this is a life decision. Um, and it's still hard. It's still kind of hard that she took it. I know that now she's, you know, going to be safe and, and get out and have her life, but we were all ready to go forward. And so it was, uh, it was hard in, in a number of respects. So how is she doing today? She's doing very well. We hear from her. You're able to email, um, and we write letters. And so I just got an email from her the other day, and she is doing well. I mean, she is, you know, knows that she just needs to get through this time, and she's trying to figure out what she should study, and she's looking at, you know, what can she do when she gets out, and she's just very forward-thinking in her future, keeping her head on straight, um, and getting through it. She sounded good. What was the community reaction when she took this plea? It was mixed. I think... There were a lot of individuals, at least, that I spoke to that after the second hung jury, that a lot of them, regardless of what they felt, they thought she was guilty or they thought she was not guilty. They said, why are we trying her again? We've put her through two trials. She, you know, has not been convicted by 
either jury. Why are we spending taxpayer dollars? Why are we going through all of this again? She should be set free, regardless of what their personal belief was on it. That was the large majority. Um, and so then after the plea, you, you had a mix. You had, you know, Rob's family who obviously indicated that they wanted her to have more time. And then you had her family and friends and those that believed in her innocence thinking this is terribly unfair that she's, she has to do three and a half years. So a real dichotomy. I don't think there was any middle-of-the-road um, views. Well, this has been really enlightening. It's always interesting to talk with an attorney about um, strategy. And uh, since I didn't watch both of the cases, although I did pop into that second trial for a couple of minutes when I was in Canton on other business. Well, thank you, Laura Mills, for sharing your thoughts. Thank you. Still to come in this series are interviews with a juror from the second trial and with a member of Rob McKernan's family. And I want to thank all of you for listening to this latest episode of Karis on Crime. As always, I welcome your feedback. You can post comments or questions, ideas on the forum on Karis on Crime if you're a member. Also, my Twitter handles are at Beth Karras and at Karis on Crime, two Twitter pages. You can also find me on Facebook on the page with my name, Beth Karras. Till the next time, be well.